All right, welcome to Teed Up. This is uh, the Teed Up Podcast. I'm here with my buddy, Arthur. Hey, you Troy. Go ahead and you can say your full name. You can say just your first name, but tell us a little bit about what interests you. Yeah, my name is Arthur. Um, I work with Troy uh, with kids. Do they know where you work on this podcast? They do not where I work. They don't they, know? They don't I'm know. not going to tell them. No. <laughs> but we do work with kids. I work uh, with kids and adults, just like Troy. And, uh, and adults. Yeah. That yeah. are closer to kids sometimes than adults sometimes sometimes they're just sometimes they're yeah i don't know sometimes they're um, just regular old adults sometimes they're just regular old adults sometimes they're kids yeah um yeah i worked with troy at uh, a place of undisclosed location um job site 51 <laughs> and um i'm interested in film um i've been watching uh some films by vim vendors recently uh german film director oh, um, i never heard of him What's yeah he done? so he's done one called like wings of desire um paris texas Mm-mm. i haven't seen it that one actually stars uh harry dean stanton from alien oh really yeah i don't we know if just it was talking about alien before or after yeah we were um what's his name vim vendors with a w's vim vendors yeah um but, uh, yeah, so I watched one last night called Wings of Desire that I've seen before, um, and I actually watched it with the uh, audio commentary on, which is, like, new territory for me. Um, but it was cool to hear him talk about his picture and the ideas that went into it and the creative process. It's always cool to watch those kinds of, like, extra aspects of, of filmmaking. Yeah. Because people forget in, like, the... Especially, especially with films that people really like. They forget, like, how much goes into it, and they don't think always about the artisan, like, craftsmanship that is, like, Mm -hmm. required to make good films, Mm -hmm. because most of what we really love in good films isn't always the story. You know, like, you hear that Mm -hmm. common phrase Mm -hmm. all the time that, like, great scripts don't always make the best films. Uh, speaking of this film, actually didn't have a script for the most part. No script. Yeah, yeah, it was a very. So he just made it. He made it on the fly. It was just like it was a true art. It piece was, uh, yeah, it was a true art piece. Um, it was kind of like the col- I don't, It was just like uh, you know how um, if you make a painting or a drawing really fast and it's excellent, yeah. um, someone might say like, oh, you know, my two year old could do that, you know, and it would mm. be just as good. But um, it isn't really true in large part because that drawing is the culmination of every other painting and drawing you've ever made. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so anyway, I think it was all this talent and all this skill and all these ideas that just combined and came together to make a really stunning picture. That's that awesome. kind of evolved as they were shooting it. Right. Which is also interesting, too, because sometimes in films you can see that. Like, you can see that kind of progression mm-hmm. of style. Yeah. Where, like, maybe at the beginning of a film a director isn't so... Um, aware of like the style or the vision he wants to create yeah and it like becomes really dialed down like close to the climax usually dialed down meaning no like like really dialed down in um concept so like Ah, they've really dialed down what it is that they want to convey they've figured out what style works good for like maybe shooting scenes they've figured out how to best like really raise the anticipation or like they've figured out how to best convey not always through, like, somebody talking about what's happening, you know? Sometimes mm-hmm. it's by those, like, subtle shots that you get. I think Birdman is a really good Oh, I, lo- I love that, that film when it Where, came like, out. there was... It, it clearly, to me, had a vision at the start of it, mm-hmm. but there was something that happened kind of around the middle of the film where it, it really entirely started to rely on how the film was shot. 
mm-hmm. every ounce of like how I felt about the movie yeah. was kind of hanging on how each of these like scenes like were is being it is shot. it gonna work like right. that's what yeah. I was feeling when I was watching Absolutely. I was like like is this gonna work yeah. like oh my god like I yeah. get it I feel it right <clears throat> the story's there but yeah. like that's not what I'm interested in no, like no, I'm no. interested in like Technical, how these visual. shots are yeah how yeah. they're making me feel in this moment you yeah. know yeah and those are always really cool to see in in films yeah. obviously it's a different example what what's the name of the film you just watched it's uh, called Wings of Desire Wings of Desire yeah dude I'm gonna check it out it was really good yeah yeah check it out. Uh, I have uh, the Blu-ray too. If you ever want to borrow it, um, yeah, it's a great film. It's um, very poetic and and rich, richly textured. It's set in Berlin, hmm. and it was. I think it. I believe it. It's eighties, an eighties film. Eighty-seven. Eighty-seven. Yeah. yeah, West Germany. Yeah. Nice so thing. yeah, so it was West Germany. There was the wall up and everything, but um. But yeah, man, I'm really gonna check this out. Yeah. Two angels, uh, Demille. Yeah, I think it's that Damiel, yeah. Damiel and Cassiel mm-hmm. observe life on Earth and the human condition. They've been doing it for a long time, and I've seen both the best and the worst of mankind. God, that sounds right up my alley. Yeah, I, I'm sure it is. <laughs> I'm sure it is. It's a pretty pretty apt description, too. But, uh, yeah. That's awesome. So, so that's what you were doing yesterday? Yep, yeah, that's what I was doing yesterday. I like film, um, some art, painting and drawing. Um, I'm thinking about getting back into at least, like, viewing photography like looking at photographs and just really studying them um yeah you know that's interesting you bring up photography uh Mm. there's a new girl at our work that works Mm. on my team okay who uh her minor is she's minoring in art history but uh i majored in painting and when i was at we went to the same school yeah and she actually Um, has been working under this professor who I won't name, but <clears throat> it just turns out, small world, I was a research assistant for this professor in college. Okay. okay. And she is a photographer. She like that's her, um, her emphasis. Yeah. Uh, sorry, man. Just noticed <laughs> this cat's like already back inside. <coughs> <coughs> Thanks. No problem. All right. But yeah, it was kind of a small world uh, situation, and it got me thinking about like the research that I did for her. Yeah, and it was more <clears throat> photographic based, but mm-hmm. it was also more like historic based. It made me feel like a librarian. It was super cool. Oh, I wow. got to go through like archives and like the the special archives at SDSU. Cool. And, um, and were you looking at um, what were you looking at? Prints. Or? So she was. I looked at lots of stuff. She was doing this um, presentation on this, like, one specific artist. Uh-huh. But she wanted to get, um, in, in this, like, one specific piece that they did, it had a lot to do with oranges. Okay. And so she wanted, like, research on, like, the history of... She essentially wanted me to do all the research that these artists had done to do that piece. Oh. Does that make sense? She you, wanted, you like, all of the their, research their into... Yeah. Yeah. She wanted, like, all kinds of stuff that would have maybe been used for mm-hmm. research for them. <laughs> okay. So she wanted, like... I did a bunch of, like, extensive research in, like, the history of oranges in California. Huh. Um, early photos and photographs. Um, b- back when, like, you, you ever see those, like, donut shops that, like, were the shape of donuts? Yeah. You yeah. know what I'm talking about? There's a word for that, too. Yeah, there is a word for it. And I totally <laughs> have forgotten it. I asked some yeah. research assistant I was. But she was also interested in, like, buildings that were shaped like the objects that they sold. Yeah. Because yeah. there was apparently, like, a huge uh, time period where that was, like, an architectural, yeah, like, yeah. movement. Like an ice cream, and there, ice cream cone shaped. Yep. Uh, but oranges were one yeah. of them in California. Okay. So I did lots of research into, um, like, 
the early days of settling California because before gold was a thing here, yeah. oranges were were the thing, and even after gold was a thing here, oranges were the thing. Yeah. But orange, we had like this huge orange festival that like really brought shit tons of people to California, like in the early days, and the orange orchards were the biggest crop, and everybody around the the country wanted them. Mm-hmm. So there were all these like like old postcards and stuff, like especially in like San Diego and. I even found some stuff from the city that I'm from, Rancho Cucamonga, because uh-huh, uh-huh. apparently they grew lots of oranges out there. Really? And they, like wow. hosted the Orange Festival for a few They were years. sexy oranges in California. They were some sexy oranges, yeah. man. I have orange trees back home where uh, where I grew up, so it was really cool to kind of do some work for someone that was in my field of interest, yeah, but also yeah. like in an area of study that I didn't know much about yeah. like photography and okay. also on like a topic that was close to home mm-hmm. but i similarly didn't know much about mm-hmm. it's a really cool experience nice and the professor is um one of the most like <clears throat> open-hearted people i ever got to meet oh open-hearted yeah um, she was really really like she was really inspired you could tell she was inspired by the show the stuff that she taught does okay. that make sense yeah, yeah yeah it does she uh yeah, it does make sense. Because she was an art history teacher, but photography was her thing. So she taught, like, yeah. photography courses, but, like, in being in her art history classes, you could always tell that, like, her being there was what was fun for her. Like, it was fun for her to have, like, a conversation that people right. engaged with, right. right? Like, you could tell that she cared about what you were saying and, like, internalized it, you yeah. know? She was a part of the process of being in the class, just like we all were. Yeah. And it made it was like, it was like very evident, I felt. Okay. She just loved that part of her life. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Cool. And it made it cool working for her. Yeah. And so your, uh, your co-worker? Uh, yeah, co-worker. She, uh, studies under this person? Yeah. Yeah. She actually helped her uh, study abroad, I guess. Okay. Which, I don't know how or why. Yeah. It's worked out that way. Yeah. Cool. Uh, speaking of abroad, um, you have some space news? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we'll start off with just a little bit of space news. And if we're lucky, we'll finish with some space news. Because y'all know your boy likes his space news. So I'm not sure if you heard of this of this plan, yeah. But uh, there, was this, there was this plan, this article oh, that okay. came out maybe like two, three weeks ago. Okay. Um, but I forget the headline... Uh, interstellar porch light, in quotes, just might help us find space aliens. A uh, new paper suggests... Yeah, that's right. This is like a scholarly journal that came out, this report, and that suggested that extraterrestrials might mark their presence with a super luminous laser beam. Yeah. The, their idea, this whole paper, this somebody wrote a fucking thesis, uh-huh. I want to say at Harvard, yeah? Really? It was at so Harvard. So this was like someone, the culmination of someone's PhD program? Yes. They Their whole thesis essentially was... Aliens might see us if we shoot this giant laser beam into yeah. space. Well, so laser lights travel in a straight line, more yeah. or less. I mean, it diffuses, right? But so which direction do you point it in? Good question. I don't know. <laughs> okay. But I, I found it absolutely hilarious. That's some, it's like it's like saying if I somebody may find me if I go out onto my porch and I light a bunch of fireworks off. Like, they for sure find you though. Is they're the thing. for sure gonna yeah. find us. Yeah. Like, yeah, if we shoot a giant laser beam into space just that makes... just goes on forever, yeah. like, I'm sure someone's gonna see it. Yeah, absolutely. Like, why wouldn't they? But the speed of light, man, that's so fucking slow. Eh, comparatively. But lasers, I 
I know they don't go quicker than the speed of light. Yeah. But... They go at the speed of light, right? Yeah, but there's something about, like, quantum entanglement, yeah? Um, and I don't know the science behind this, but have you heard of quantum entanglement? Yes. It's super complex. Essentially, for those of you guys that don't know, it's this concept that two particles can be quantumly uh, entangled with each other. Stuff so, that happens to one happens to the other? Yes. Whatever happens to one will, will have an inverse or opposite or uh, the same effect on the other. I, I don't know the specific science of it, but it is been confirmed that quantum entanglement is a real thing. And it's also been hypothesized that um, because of quantum entanglement, we could somehow interact with the far reaches of the universe uh -huh. without actually having to travel there. And lasers have been a big part of how we would be able to do that. <laughs> Just sounds like lasers are the answer to everything. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> like we're, we're traveling back in time to the... Like 60s or something? Yeah, man. Let's just shoot a bunch yeah. of lasers into the okay. sky and, right. and see when we get a, uh, a call back. <clears throat> well, maybe uh, maybe the Earth over there with the Troy and Arthur over there, you know, they're going to shoot lasers our direction, and then they'll meet in the middle. But we won't oh, yeah. see theirs because it's stuck in our... Stuck path. in our, yeah. our like line of vision? Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. It, the idea of signaling is, like, not a new one. Um, I mean, we've... They've been using it for, like, millennia. Yeah. Smoke signals? Yeah, smoke signals, that's true. I meant, like, signaling with space. Okay. So, like, SETI was established, uh, which I remember the acronym this time. It's the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Mm, okay. I don't know why that was so damn hard for me to remember last time, but um, I always forget acronyms. I'm really bad with them. Okay. Especially ones that are, like, common nomenclature that you say often. Uh -huh. I will just, like, forget what they actually S mean. Scuba? I don't know what that means. I don't know what the shit no. scuba means. Uh -huh. <laughs> hmm scurrying close underwater Butts. before <laughs> i don't know <laughs> before uh all the air is gone sure yeah that works that's scuba for you but um all right so let me just read a little bit of what the this this laser was. okay so step one would be to find the world's most powerful laser. So this is guy's plan. Step two. Oh, find it, not yeah, create oh, yeah, it. Yeah, find no, it. We gotta find it. We gotta it's like find underground it. somewhere. <laughs> the Prometheus mission or something is like yeah. hidden. Some secret underground laser. Step two is to focus the laser with a telescope, having a mirror of at least 10, uh, 10 meters in diameter. Wow. Produce a beam narrower than a twin bed. And then step three would be to intermittently flash the laser with each flash lasting a millionth of a second or so. Whoa. Uh, this titanic laser pointer would produce a pulse that would outshine the sun, even from light years away. So I guess the idea is that it would create, like, large... It would be like a beacon of light. Uh, it would yeah. shine light really quickly <clears throat> yep. because it's moving so fast. Yeah. Even if it only took, like, a year or two, you know, if something's, like, three or four light years away. Or... I mean, to be honest, I've, I kind of get caught up a lot in our own solar system. Yeah. I think it's kind of insane that we're always talking about like galaxies uh -huh. far, far away. Uh -huh. Maybe that's like Star Wars is part to blame with that, you know? Maybe, but, yeah. <clears throat> but the moons we, of some of our planets, right? Some of them might yeah. have water or sure. things like that. And I'm not saying intelligent life exists within our solar system, but in our galaxy you know like i feel like it must be easier to communicate than it would be yeah, within our own 
galaxy? Yeah, absolutely. What, the Milky Way galaxy, right? Yeah. It's huge. And given that... Given that it's possible for life to have been developing for much longer than we've been developing on Earth. Like, I think about often the fact that America's only 241 years old. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Wow, that's so short. That's, like, three humans ago. That's enough for us to, like... Well, I was gonna say, like, do well and then fail, but, like, we never really did that well. Like, slavery. Did better than everybody slavery else. And, well, what is, what's better, right? Being on top. <clears throat> what's on top? We run the world, man. Oh. I mean, we run the world. Nobody I mean, does shit without our okay. Yeah, but is that... That doesn't mean it's good. I'm not saying it's good. Oh. I'm just saying we're the best. Like, for all intents and purposes. Like, yeah. We have been labeled the best country. We have taken it upon ourselves. To, and this is why <laughs> we, I label us, to, we label ourselves the best country, right? Sure, but that doesn't mean we don't also then have to live up to that standard, right? And, like, it also doesn't mean that that's not, like, a lasting effect. If yeah. we have been the leaders of the world for the last century then uh-huh. we have to like then that it still makes us our responsibility whether or not we came into that power will or like deservingly yeah. or yeah, not yeah. you know or whether or not we like deserve it now uh-huh. it doesn't mean that we still don't like hold and wield that authority you know so i i do think right. that's why right. like the onus is on us to take the responsibility to figure out like to ask the hard questions right like what does it mean to be the best what does it mean yeah. To, yeah. do we want to be good you know, do yeah. we want to do things that, like, what are our actual objectives? Yeah. Are we looking to create a world that is more prosperous, that's more inclusive, that, um, or that has more, that has innovation that is, you know, there for everybody? Or are we looking to create a world that's more narrow, right? Where, it's like a paywall. Sure. Yeah. And it looks like we're heading in one of two directions, right? And I think that's part of, like, the feeling that people have felt, right? It's in the yeah. ether now. You know, people have known it for a lot of years. But it's been fairly easy to ignore, mm, right? Okay. And yeah. I talked about this a little bit on my last podcast, but um, it's be- in my opinion, it's because we have all these things, right? It's it's mm. because of the commodi- the commoditization of uh, American life. Consumerism. Consumerism, yeah. sure, is a huge part of it. But I think consumerism is too easily casting the blame away from ourselves. And is what it? I mean by that is, it's easy to say something like. Well, that's just, it's just the consumerist culture we live in. Uh-huh. But it's really hard to say, no, there's something wrong with the way we've applied capitalism to our lives, right? Because so many people have this uh, orientalization or orientalized version of what capitalism means, right? We think of capitalism as being like the best thing that ever happened in the world. Like for you to question capitalism is okay. like, is blasphemous in America, you know? Okay. And not like... In this maybe kind of dialogue where people are just like conversing about it. Yeah. But where power actually lives, you know, you'd never hear a congressman talking shit about capitalism mm-hmm. because they can't, they can't even make honest criticisms about capitalism or the way in which we've designed it. Yeah. Without, for fear of, of sounding like, or being labeled a communist. Right. Or right. for fear of being labeled a socialist yeah. or, um, for fear of an all-out thwarted attack by Wall Street, you yeah, know, like yeah. we can't have serious and honest and open discussions about these things mm-hmm. in America because we've kind of fetishized this idea of what capitalism is without understanding that it is first and foremost, yeah, something we created. I mean, it's a system that we made and we give power to. We create the we wrote the rules for it, right? We can change those rules at any right. time, which 
any good system, right? Yeah. Prototypes, it changes its rules. It, yeah, yeah. It accommodates to new and changing pressures, right? And any good system should be able to do that. But that actually brings us to our topic of free speech because this kind of narrows into part of that um, dicey situation that I've kind of been seeing with regards to free speech in America. Okay. And one of them maybe would be this outright criticism of our capitalist economy, right? That um, can't be freely and openly talked about for fear of all the things I just said. But there are more like, there are more in-your-face kind of, I dare I say, um, naive examples uh, okay. of how free speech is kind of being manipulated or um, the concept of free speech is kind of being turned on its head mm. for <clears throat> what I see as being hurt feelings. Mm, um, okay. But before we get into that... Um, I asked you to read a little bit of this book. Uh, the book is called On Liberty. It's by John Stuart Mill. Um, how far did you get into this thing, man? Um, so on my first pass through, I got um, I got pretty far. I got about maybe a well, a little less than halfway of kind of a really quick reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, there's a lot in here. It's not uh, particularly my wheelhouse. Like not what I spend a lot of time my time thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about government and. Um, uh, really the nitty-gritty of politics. Sure. The theory um, behind it. Yeah, exactly. No, that's actually but, part of uh, why I thought it would be interesting for your, for us to talk about this is because I know that you're a critical thinker and that this is probably something that you don't spend a lot of time thinking right. too critically about. Right. Because this book is, like, very critical. I mean, it's a philosophical text. Yes. Um, John Stuart Mill was an English <clears throat> philosopher and his book On Liberty was originally intended as um, like a series of short essays. Um, it was published in 1859, and it applies um, this ethical system that Mill um, created called utilitarianism, you may have heard of. This was Mill's um, what a thesis that he had, but it's what, it, what he's most kind of known for. And this, this work on liberty applies utilitarianism to society and then to the state. So in this book, Mill attempts to establish um, standards for the relationship between authority and liberty. Um, He tries to kind of like verbalize and dial down where those actual lines can be drawn between um, what liberty you have and what authority the Mm. government or other people, society have over you in order to modify your behavior, right? So like where are those lines drawn, you know? Um, this was kind of at a time where the French Revolution, you know, Let's see. Um, was still fresh on everybody's mind. Um, not that it like just happened, but yeah, yeah. the ideas of the Enlightenment were still very much in everyone's head. Sure. Is what I was getting Sure, at. sure, sure. And, you know, in the 1700s, it wasn't more than like a decade prior. So like maybe the way that we think of World War Two, you know, uh-huh. okay. um, the Civil War had just happened in the United States. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. America was still, like, an early country, right? And here yeah. we are... Nothing's, like, decided. Like, it's all kind of up in the air. Right? Um, yeah, I mean, well, like, America things, had but... been decided, but, like, all I'm meaning is that, like, I'm trying to think about, like, what the mindset of John yeah. Stuart Mill must have been when he was writing this, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, coming from England, like, he was English, but also, like, looking at, like, who did America rebel against, you know? 
And what was our First Amendment, right? Uh You know, England didn't have these amendments. They didn't have a freedom of speech guaranteed by a constitution. America did. Yeah. And so, like, at this time, you know, these new countries being founded, like, this guy was was looking at this and thinking about, like, I have this idea of utilitarianism, right? Like, how how is it that this could be applied to a society? Like, how can we talk about this rationally to where the ideas that I have are more than just ideas? Like, how can they practically, like, practically be inserted into yeah. a governing system? Yeah. Where do we delineate between what you're free to do because you're an individual and what you have to give up in order to be a part of a society? <coughs> Buzzy. Excuse me. That's nah, um, all good. Yeah. Um, yeah, he talks a little bit about um, kind of Bill of, Bill of Rights type language, um, um, tyranny of the majority. So, you know, if, is what's good for the most people the most good? And uh, Mill doesn't think so. Um, but, uh, yeah. Well, do you want to you tease that out a little bit? So that's yeah. kind of based on his ethical theory of utilitarianism. And all... To give a brief overview of what utilitarianism is, for those of you that don't know, it's an ethical theory that states the best action for one person to do. So, like, this is a theory that you can apply in decision-making. If you're conflicted about what decision to make or what action you should choose to do, um, utilitarianism states that um, the best action is the one that maximizes utility. Mm-hmm. So um, utility is usually defined by that that produces the greatest amount of well-being to the greatest number of people. And in some cases, you can even include like sentient animals and life and, and whatever, yeah, right? Totally. So like, what, you can kind yeah. of expand utilitarianism to, sure, to, to encompass all of this, right? Yeah. So Mill's thinking was you, the right action to do is the one that increases the uh, amount of well-being for the most amount of people. Well, the right action by the government, right? Or for anybody. For anybody. Okay. So utilitarianism as a principle is yeah. like something that you yourself can prescribe to mm-hmm. in order to figure out what the right choice to do in yeah. any given situation. Not like mm-hmm. the it's not the best choice, right? Yeah. But he would argue it's the best choice. Sure. So like a good example would be like um maybe apply it to like uh vegetarianism right uh-huh. now. So like is it right or wrong to be a vegetarianism? Or better yet, is it right or wrong to eat meat? Uh-huh. That's the better way of putting sure. it. Sure. Sure. Uh, Mill would argue that well you make a pros and cons list essentially, and whatever whatever pro whatever con weighs out the most. Yeah. Um, with the aim of increasing the most well being for people, would be the right decision to to make. Mm-hmm. So if it was the case that um, it would cause more well being for people for the a more like amount of people right um, to abstain from meat because. It would reduce carbon emissions. It's saving yeah, people yeah, in yeah. the long run. Blah blah blah. Yeah, would be the right choice. However, if um, you lived in a family where uh, eating meat was part of your religious tradition, mm-hmm. and this was a part of your entire culture, right? From your point of view, it may be that what increases the most well-being for the most amount of uh, people would be eating meat. Yeah, savvy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the basic principle of utilitarianism. It's kind of kind of based on your perspective, right? Because if you know a lot of meat farmers, then you probably will not want to hinder their sure business. And maybe that example is a little loose um, because it does rely on indi- like uh, subjectivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there is a large swathing kind of section. Like John Trump Mill was primarily um, interested in political um, theory. 
and social political thought. And so a lot of his ideas kind of were born out of the state and how to okay. apply these principles to what the right and wrong actions to do would be for like governments and governing, right? right, right. right? Here, give me one second. Yeah, right. sure. My battery's running low. Oh, okay. But did you want to tease out a little bit what he uh, what he talks about as far as the greater good, the greater well-being, the difference between them? Um, well, I kind of just got that general idea um, just in my... I didn't get it, but I, I read the idea of um, kind of um, um, whatever, whatever actions promote the most good for the most people um, are kind of maybe the ones that should be pursued. Um, with the kind of exception of um, not wanting to have a system that um, is then just decided by 90% of the people and then 10% of the people get, you know, murdered or worse. Um, just because the most people, right, 90% of the people want to kill these people or, right. or torture these people, you know. Um, Which is a great point, right? Yeah. So he also kind of, restriction. kind of makes clear in this book... Um, that there, in, in society, there is an actual, there's a real threat by a tyranny of the majority, Yeah. right? That the majority of the people could just be wrong about something. Or the majority of people could really, really want violent action, you yeah. know? Yeah, um, I think really, like, clear and good examples of this are, um, you can see them in places in the Middle East. Um, and even not just the Middle East, but... Places like the Philippines with, like, Duarte, um, or Duterte. Uh -huh. um, things like uh, jihadism, right? Um, Sharia law, in uh -huh. my mind, uh -huh. are examples of, well, this may be what the majority of people want, but is, this, is it what's best for the majority of people? Is it what's right to do, you know? It, is it okay to silence those 10% of people because 90% of people believe that if you steal something, you should have your hand chopped off? Yeah. And that if you're yeah. a woman and you don't wear a full burqa, you deserve to be raped and killed. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, it, does that make it ethical, right? Does that make the choice right? Or does it is it still wrong even though the majority of people believe Desire it? Desire it, yeah. Well, it, it, it's kind of um, like the, you know, the only real good that cutting off people's hands achieves is satisfying the beliefs of the people who want that. I mean, he actually mentions just kind of one point that I... Um, found insightful. Um, he was talking about the role of custom in society. Mm -hmm. um, it's like page five. Um, but uh, let's see if I can find a, a quotable quote. Yeah, um, I love quotable quotes. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll kind of just jump in. It's you know maybe like uh, 15, 12 lines or something, but uh, we'll see what we can do with it. Um, so he's writing uh, that uh, all that makes existence valuable to anyone depends on the enforcement of restraints upon the actions of other people. Some rules of conduct, therefore, must be imposed by law in the first place and by opinion on many things which are not fit subjects for the operation of law. What these rules should be is the principal question in human affairs. But if we accept a few of the most obvious cases, it is one of those which least per uh, it is one of those which least progress has been made in resolving. Mm -hmm. No two ages and scarcely any two countries have decided it alike, and the decision of one age or country is a wonder to another. Yet the people of any given age and country no more suspect any difficulty in it than if it were a subject on which mankind had always been agreed. 
The rules which obtain among themselves appear to them self-evident and self-justifying. This is all but universal illusion. This, this all but universal illusion is one of the examples of the magical influence of custom, which is not only, as the proverb says, a second nature, but is continually mistaken for the first. Um, so to kind of complicate the question of what's most good and what's good in general and, you know, um, who's being affected by these decisions is um, this idea of custom. And like you said, you know, no two ages, no two countries, like kind of they have they don't have the same customs. Like we were born into a capitalist system and a certain history and, and, and everything. We were born into, you know, this place, right? Specific location to specific parents and specific religious affiliations and things like that. Um, and so you have to consider the fact that even within a country, there are going to be a bunch of different people with a bunch of different beliefs about what's right. But you can't, because of that, because a lot of these things are just, just custom, like they're just, you know, we, we think that they're the answer. We think that that's the way things are obviously supposed to be. Um, that uh, you um, that they're, they're almost nullified, right? So you, right. you can't you can't be making this these decisions you have to about, take them as that right you have to as take them as that custom. yeah and so if you know say white supremacists want to kill anyone who's not white um and say most people are white supremacists or most people are white then um it's important to identify that that's that's just that's their belief that's the custom if you try and justify it you won't get that deep you know other than we don't like them you know absolutely and I think that Mill uses the word custom, yeah, because because um, in my, like what I'm typically drawn to in these arguments or in these discussions is pointing out religion, mm -hmm. and it may just be that that is something that I have a background in studying, so that's like why I'm drawn yeah, to it. But it's yeah. also something I'm fascinated by. But he, I think he uses the word custom because it in in captures. Uh, more aspects than just like your 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 whole life religion it, yeah. it encapsulates both religion and culture mm -hmm. and then also those things that you have no control over right like your genetics mm -hmm. and um, the social environment in which you're brought up in right that may right. be outside of your culture right like maybe that you're of a certain culture but you're born in the melting pot of the United States right so like you are in a culture that mm -hmm. is not just yours, but also lots of other people's, right? Yeah. And so I think that, like, like I was getting at earlier, John Stuart Mill had a lot of these things in his mind, right? And was specifically thinking about America when he was talking about a lot of these things. Because he had just witnessed kind of a lot of stuff going on in, and maybe not witnessed, but he had, he had been watching a lot of what was happening in America. Yeah. And had grown up with this knowledge of what had happened previously, right? Mm -hmm. And in much of the way that we had grown up in watching or learning about what had happened during World War One and World War Two, uh -huh. right? Yeah. Um, that's where I find, like, the connection to... That's where we draw our parallels when, when, you know, when uh, people call... Personally. You know, like, Trump a Nazi or, you know, things like that, or yeah. compared to Hitler, right? They're using the context of World War World War Two. Yeah, it's, it's the closest we've gotten, yeah. you know? Yeah. But I think that it also... It's just the most current and relevant case of uh, fascism, it, but also one of the most dangerous that we ever had to confront. Uh -huh. uh, it, it's been happening for, I mean, you could make the argument that the Romans oh. were, were worse than uh, than Hitler ever was, the you who? know? The Romans. 
oh, back okay. in the day. You know, they, sure, you, sure. the sun never set on the Roman Empire. You yeah, know, like yeah. so this kind of like recurring thing has been happening for as far back in human history as we can think of. And I, I find that like Mills, I Mills' lifetime of contemplating these ideas kind of came out of all of those things. It came out of just noticing that this was a recurring pattern throughout history to and also a, a fatal flaw of democracy right which mm-hmm. john stuart mill believed in you know that he supported but notice that this was a flaw of democracy uh-huh. that evolves the, yeah. the tyranny of the majority yeah right that if you simply say that whatever the most people agree with is right yeah you run the risk of not thinking critically about where those people got those ideas the outcomes of those those ideas whether or not those things are going to benefit the the most amount of people or contribute to the most well-being of others and whether or not those things are right or wrong to do and how do you navigate that right yeah um because obviously if a majority of people want something there has to be some way in which we can critically talk about or analyze whether or not that's the right or wrong thing to do and all Wait, this is not to say, you that, say that there is. Uh, I'm saying that you're saying that there should be a way. We should try. I'm just to saying find that there way. there should be a forum on which mm. the conversation can be had. Oh, okay. Right, and I think that's where the, his general principle of um, ultimate free speech comes from. Uh huh. Because um, he argues. Let me see if I can read a little bit. Um, Uh, the object. So he states that the object of this essay is to assert ver- one very simple principle, uh, as entitled to govern absolutely the dealings of society with which the individual, in the way of compulsion and control, whether the means used be physical force in the form of legal penalties or moral coercion of public opinion, that principle is that the sole end for which one, uh, for which mankind are warranted individually or collectively, in interfering with that liberty of action of any other number is self-protection so essentially what he's saying is the only the only grounds on which you have the authority to interfere with someone else's liberty is on the grounds of Mm self-protection um he's making that assertion yeah that the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others his own good either physical or moral is not sufficient warrant he cannot mm-hmm. rightfully be compelled to do or forbear um, because it will be better for him to do so or because it will make him happier or because in the opinions of others to do so would be wise or even right. These are, uh, these are good reasons for remonstrating with him or reasoning with him or persuading him or entreating him, but not for compelling him or visiting him with any evil in case he do otherwise. To justify that, the conduct from which it is desired to deter him must be calculated to produce evil to someone. So, what Mill comes up with uh-huh. after thinking about all of these problems is um, essentially the claim that the only way in which you can exercise either physical force over someone, um, he's talking about the authority of the state at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. So, the only authority, or the only time the, author- the authority of the state, or the state has the authority over your own liberty. Um, can't it can't be in the realm of your ideas. It can't be in the realm of your thoughts, right? It can't be in the realm of your actions even. Only insofar as your actions do not bring harm to other people. Right. 
So there, it sounds like kind of the role of the government might just be to keep people from killing each other. Well, see, I don't think he sees it that way either, right? Because he's not saying that the sole uh-huh. purpose of, uh, or the sole right yeah. or authority of the government is in preventing harm from coming from other to, uh-huh. to other people, right? Uh-huh. So, like, I'm not saying that um, I believe, and actually I should caveat, I, I very, very strongly believe in a lot of what Mill says. Uh-huh. So when I kind of throw his ideas out with um, my own personal beliefs, it may be because I, I strongly find myself um, aligned, at least with his ideas on liberty. Okay. Um, I often find myself aligned with his philosophy on the state's ability to assert authority over other people. And also people's authority to assert authority over other people. Mm-hmm. But... With it. Do you want to try it? No, no thanks. It's uh, this mango flavor. Here, take the lid off and smell it. Mm, okay. You'll be blown away, man. Mango is my favorite flavor of all time, and... It smells, oh, it smells good. It smells just like mangoes, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I swear to God, the taste like on a, this a little, is like... A little sugary, but yeah. It's like, it's like biting into a yellow mango. Wow. It's the best juice I've found wow. in, in probably years. Cool. Like, I haven't had a flavor that is this, like, ripe and... Well, like a candy store. <laughs> like, fully flavored in a really long yeah. time. Cool. Oh, does it... Does, does the taste stay in your mouth as well? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, big time. Anyway. <laughs> um, Are we recording? Yeah. Not oh, sure okay. if it didn't. Or if it, if it uh, yeah. stopped. Yeah. But, uh, anyway, on, on John Stuart Mill, I want to talk about free speech. And uh-huh. he kind of gets into it at one point where he talks about um, the liberty of thought and discussion. Okay. And he he kind of describes that there are three divisions on which um, to talk about the idea of free speech. So there are kind of like... Th- here, I'll, I'll see if I can't find a little quote real quick of him um, that maybe describes it better. Yeah. I, I learned about... Well, I learned about liquid in painting class, uh-huh. but... Uh... Liquid's cool. Yeah, it's nice, man. It's been the medium I've been using for this. I like oh, yeah? it. Good, good. It's given me the right, way the right finish. You haven't been going straight oil. Oh, no, never. Yeah. That, well, yeah. But I have and a handful of different mediums. Would crazy, too. Yeah. Sure would. You would. You'd wake up with, with a headache every day. Not that you don't already. I don't know your life, but... <laughs> I fucking might as well, man. Yeah. You know, like, I, no, I have a I headache know, so too. often, yeah. dude. Yeah. I've been getting really bad headaches, and... This year has been probably the worst oh, in a lot of years. Yeah. Once I got my medical marijuana card, uh-huh. um, when I turned 19, I got my medical marijuana card. Uh-huh. And I should you not, man, uh, uh, if only on these grounds, you know, if, if, if that's all I have to, to argue from. After I started smoking <clears throat> weed habitually, the amount of migraines I got decreased exponentially. Really? Wow. Hands down. Wow. And it wasn't just like from smoking weed when i would get a headache Mm -hmm. it was from habitually smoking marijuana like i found myself getting them less and less often so like for most of college like i would get migraines every now and again but like the worst headaches i ever got were hangovers Mm. you know yeah um when i was in high school or you know in elementary school you know migraines i would get them at least a few times a month yikes like inhabilitating you know yeah and it still happens to me every now and again but uh this year has been one of the worst years for me in getting migraines. Shit. I've gotten them a lot more often than I than I ever have. That sucks, man. Yeah, it's okay, but uh, just something you gotta live with, you know. My dad gets them really yeah. bad. He's always mm. gotten them his whole life, and yeah. and his mom has got them 
Okay. So it's definitely genetic, but uh, it sucks. Yeah, if if there is ever a reason to uh, start smoking weed, if you <laughs> if you get yeah. migraines habitually, yeah, I'd say yeah. that's a good one. Yeah. So um, let's see. I'll go ahead and and I'll give just a general um, talk about Mill. I'll quote him here. Speaking generally, it is not in constitutional countries to be apprehended that the government, whether completely responsible to the people or not, will often attempt to control the expression of opinion, except in when doing so makes itself the organ of general intolerance of the public. So he's kind of laying out and saying, essentially, um, generally speaking, it's been the case that whether or not you're in a constitutional country, typically governments have tried to silence the opinion of people that they disagree with. Okay. It's just yeah. been He's the general case. Yeah, there yeah. is this trend of history yeah. that generally, whether or not you're in a constitutional yeah. society or not, governments have tried to stifle the opinion yeah. of others. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's suppose, therefore, that the government is entirely at one with the people and never thinks of exerting any power of coercion unless the unless in agreement with what it conceives to be their voice. Uh, but I deny the right of the people to exercise such coercion, either by themselves or by the government. The power itself is illegitimate. The best government has no more title to it than the worst. It is as noxious or more noxious when exerted in accordance with public opinion than when opposed to it. If all mankind minus one were of one opinion, and only one person were of the contrary opinion, mankind would be no more justified in silencing that one person than he if he had the power, would be justified in silencing mankind. Were an opinion of personal possession of no value except to the owner, if it to be obstructed in the enjoyment of it were simply a private injury, it would make some difference whether the injury was inflicted only on a few persons or many. But the peculiar evil of silencing the expression of an opinion is that it is robbing the human race, posterity as well as the existing generation, those who dissent from the opinion still more than those who hold it. Yeah. So what he's saying essentially is that the first principle on which ultimate free speech need be grounded is if 99% of people all agreed on one opinion mm-hmm. and 1% of people agreed or disagreed with that opinion, yeah, yeah, that you are actually robbing all of mankind. You're robbing the 99% of people from the ability to possibly have their minds change. Yeah. To possibly learn about an opinion that they wouldn't have learned about otherwise. Right. Um, You're robbing the 99% of people of the ability to, uh, of enforcing what they think is right in the first place, right? Yeah. Because if you assume that you're infallible, right, and that your opinion is correct because everybody thinks it's correct. Custom, yeah. You're then, yeah, custom you are then taking out any relevant opposition to that, right? So, like, a good example is um, if every, if the government, if everybody in the world agreed that a Tesla was the best car you could ever drive, uh-huh. right? And only 1% of people believed that the newest Ford Nissan. Focus Ford. or yeah, Nissan sure, sure. or whatever was actually a better car. Yeah. It wouldn't actually matter in that situation if all of the specs, all of the tests, all of the science... Yeah. All of the records of, of the driving records of people right. who drove these cars, it wouldn't matter if all of those were better than Tesla's, right? And you're essentially robbing the rest of society of those facts. And furthermore, people who drive Tesla's 
they wouldn't be able to make an educated opinion. There may be there may come a point, right, where a generation of people starts to rise up against Tesla and say, hey, fuck you. We don't even actually know if we're making a right opinion yeah, or a yeah, right yeah. assumption about yeah. your cars or not. Yeah. Because we haven't been given the option yeah. to say this could be correct or that could be correct, yeah. right? Yeah. You're just assuming your own infallibility. So that's kind of the first stance on which he he says that attempted <clears throat> suppression by authority maybe um, it, it, it's wrong to do so yeah, for that reason, good. right? Yeah. And, I mean, he claims that it's the duty of governments and of individuals to form the truest opinions that they can, to form them carefully and to never impose them upon others unless they are quite sure of being right. Um, and this is something he kind of says as an opposition to that opinion. So that, like, it's people's duty to inform other peoples, especially when they're sure that they're right. Yeah. Which he would argue... Um, Yes, but that doesn't that doesn't actually give you the right to assert authority over right people. impose and, that on yeah them, yeah it's not it doesn't matter if you're almost sure that you're right or not no. well, you know yeah and often enough we are almost sure that we're right right and we're not <laughs> men and governments must act to the best of their ability there's no such thing as absolute certainty but there is assurance there is assurance sufficient for the purpose of human life we may and we must assume our opinions to be true for the guidance of our own conduct. Yeah. Uh, there is the greatest difference between presuming an opinion to be true because with every opportunity for contesting it, it has not been refuted, and assuming it's truth for the purpose of not permitting its refutation. So that's that's his response to that. It's essentially saying, well, there's a difference between assuming something is true because every it's been scrutinized, right? Uh -huh. We've thought of everything. We've had every conceivable person weigh in their opinion, and we've come to the conclusion collectively that this is the best option this is the truest that we can that we can in human right, mind right, right given right. we're infallible yeah we can come to but that difference is something very different than saying well because the majority of people agree on this yeah then we have now the authority to assert that opinion over other people mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah so that's kind of the, the first head on which uh he kind of hits the hammer um the second one is See if I can do this all from memory because flipping through the book is kind of uh, a pain. I yeah, really do sure, liking. Sure. I really do like quoting him though because I think his writing is super elegant. But another one that he, um, the first one's because we're not infallible. Um, the second one is that we might be wrong. Um, mm -hmm. The second one's that we just we could be wrong. It yeah. could be the case that that one that person in the one percent that one person out of ninety nine yeah. was actually right. Yeah, and if we use our authority to silence that person, then we're actually robbing all of humanity of the opportunity to be right. Not just the opportunity to inform why why they're right, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like a good example is like white supremacy, right? Like mm -hmm. if we were to completely outlaw any speech of of white supremacists, if we were yeah. to say it's illegal to talk about white people being better than other people, yeah. Um, we would be robbing the rest of the world of the opportunity to know why that's wrong to think that way. Yeah. You know, so you're actually doing a social disservice to mm -hmm. other people who, um, even though it's a right opinion, right? Like assuming your opinion's entirely correct, mm -hmm. that it's wrong to say that, you know, white people are better than other people. Yeah, yeah. You're robbing other people of the opportunity to figure that out for themselves because they never have to come into conflict with other people, right? 
and it could breed resentment for that fact, which is is kind of what I was saying. Resentment earlier. towards the person who has the other opinion. Um, so like kind of what I was saying with like the Teslas, right? Like, yeah. it could breed resentment from people that even if they agree that it's wrong oh, to sure, assert sure, sure. that this is right <clears throat> and that's wrong, it could make people think, well, how the fuck should I know in the first place? Because you have right. I don't know any other opinion. No one's right. ever given me the yeah. opportunity to think otherwise or yeah. say otherwise. Everyone who's ever said it has been killed. You yeah. know, yeah, yeah, there could yeah. be other reasons for yeah. it. Yeah. So you, you're well, almost devaluing yeah. your opinion by suppressing the opposition to it. Yeah, and uh, I mean, a lot of our opinions about anything are, are not opinions based on uh, hard concentration and study. No. Um, especially just like when those things are tied to like religion. I, it makes me think of like uh, Galileo, right? And uh, Yeah. And, and all his ideas, which I well, Galileo had a lot of ideas, remember. and he was yeah. very vocal about his ideas, right? Too. Um, but the the church kind of was in a position of power, and they. It's not that they necessarily thought he was wrong, but um, they couldn't just have someone disputing their authority about being right, and um, and most people are are just going to look to an authority for that. They're not going to have done their own research they're not going to be talking about this stuff all the time like it doesn't matter that much to them honestly um so you look to this authority but if the authority is the only one that has a voice you know and, and galileo may be right 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 um if he, if galileo is just silence then it's this what you're talking about right uh, and i think maybe that actually touches on it kind of harkens a little bit yeah. um on exactly what i was saying when i brought up why i think religion comes to mind mm-hmm. for me when talking about free speech so often because yeah. In my opinion, there very, very, very much so has been one central structure that has survived throughout all of human history, almost, Mm -hmm. that has been the main aggressor of the suppression of free thought and free speech. And I believe that to be organized religion. For what you were just saying. For those exact reasons. Because it it has never been the case that religious institutions are oriented in a way that accept and welcome an open and free discussion about ideas. They would like to have you believe that that's the case, but there very, very much is a oligarchic, totalitarian kind of stronghold on certain ideas that... <coughs> bless you. Thanks. The second you begin to transgress against those certain values or ideas, or you begin to ask questions about them, it becomes this argument of... Um, almost authority right Mm -hmm. of when you when you push all of the arguments down to their core and where they're coming from you'll always have one person on one side saying listen there can't be any progress without opening and free thought and dialogue and then you'll have one side that says no the only way that we can progress yeah, is if you page. concede that we're right and we're all on the same page. Right, right, And right. the more that you espouse those ideas, the more that you incite yeah. um, resistance yeah. to our power, our yeah. structure of power, yeah. our structure of authority. And they're, they're not necessarily wrong, you know? No, and yeah. I would also note, too, that um, it's not that everybody are willing participants in this either. Yeah. Um, especially yeah. when it comes to the church. Uh-huh. I'm not I'm not saying that I believe everybody who's ever been a part of the church and or any given church um, is is actively engaging in this knowingly. 
mm-hmm. but very passively is how this happens. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. the people that burn Jesus, or I'm sorry, that burn Galileo, yeah. or that uh, <laughs> that crucify Jesus. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like th- they thought they were right. You know, people mm-hmm. don't do these things because they think they're the bad guy. Like they thought they were doing the right thing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's the same with jihadists, right? Socrates. Like these people aren't blowing themselves up on airplanes because they think they're the bad guy they think they're right Hmm. they fully and totally wholeheartedly believe in the things that they say they believe in savvy so like kind of yeah well like with jihadists like they when when a a kid blows themselves up for for um the quran and for islam their families celebrate them i mean they they are they yeah you should see videos of this stuff like these people are so elated and so happy that their kid is now going to get to spend eternity in paradise like they fully believe in what they're saying and i think that our human error when it comes to asserting authority over people is we often forget or we often don't consider um or better yet when we do consider we often look at those actions as being disingenuous in some kind we often say that um, because the majority of pol- people believe that this is crazy, mm-hmm. these people can't can't believe in what they're saying. Yeah. They can't honestly and truly believe right, that this right. is true, right? Um, and we kind of take it for granted that the way in which they believe certain things is the same way in which we believe certain things, right? But it just isn't, it's, and it's uh, important to recognize that. Well, absolutely, and it's important because it helps you understand not just where people are coming from right yeah. but according to john stuart mill it should help you strengthen your opinions on things right it should help enforce your ideas of either being right or wrong because you're able to to actually see in an open engaging dialogue what people actually believe in right so like imagine that jihadists were just blowing the shit out of people right uh-huh. just uh-huh. committing su- you know committing suicide committing acts of terrorism but we had never been able to read the Quran. We were told in America that to read the Quran mm, sure. is uh, violent. And it, imagine a reefer madness campaign against the Quran, yeah, which yeah. might as well already be happening, right? Because to ask a Christian to read the Quran is on par with fucking blasphemy, to be honest. Okay. And if we had outlawed that, we would have no understanding of where these people were coming from. We'd have no understanding of their opinions of their ideas and better yet we wouldn't understand that these were actually real opinions and ideas held by people like that whole fact about it would just be eclipsed by what we believe to be true so for that reason mill argues it's extremely important that we have entire open and free speech and free dialogue because we'll never be able to inform our own opinions now, the last reason, um, if I'm not mistaken, is that Mill argues that um, oftentimes nobody's true. Nobody's right. That the actual truth of a matter, um, usually both sides hmm. encompass some, some part of the truth. Yeah, they're yeah. accessing some part of the truth. And so, it, I mean, slightly touching, I guess, on the infallibility um, argument, he says, in order to act, if you want to actually organize your society in a way that is oriented towards what's true and what's good and what's right, you have to have the inclusion of all opinions and all ideas. Because if you don't, you're oftentimes going to be missing out on key aspects of what's actually true and what's, considerations. Yeah. yeah. 
And so, like, a great example with this, I would say, is, um, you know, I had a conversation with my mom, uh, you know, maybe a few months ago. Yeah. Um, oh, it was in September. It was right around September 11th, because it had okay. to do with September 11th. Okay. And this year? Yeah. Okay. Um, and being the conspiratorial guy that I am, I oftentimes, around 9-11, like to look into all the 9-11 conspiracy theories yeah. and, like, this and that, you know, yeah. and just, yeah. like, read about them, and I find them super fascinating. But I realized in talking with my mom about 9-11 that my mom actually had less clue about th- th- what had actually happened than I had ever, ever known, ever anticipated. Uh-huh. Like, my mom actually just didn't, she never thought past what George Bush had said, uh-huh. right? Like, she had just taken everything for, oh, well, they're just fucking crazy people. They're just terrorists, yeah, right? Like, yeah, they yeah. just blew us up. Like, she never thought about why the World Trade Center was what had gotten attacked uh-huh. or the Pentagon, you know, or like the certain buildings that were destroyed. Yeah. She never asked herself why it was this specific region of the world. Right. She didn't, she didn't have any of those types of orientations when thinking about 9-11, yeah. right? Yeah. And she was alive during the time, you know, yeah. she was a young adult. Yeah. Um, and so where I was kind of going with this was, um, we were talking about like what actually happened. So like we could, we could make the case that like the truth of what 9-11 was about. Uh-huh. And I had kind of explained to her, like, well, listen, it wasn't a coincidence. It wasn't just because the Twin Towers were the tallest buildings in the entire world, you know? It wasn't why they crashed into them. Um, They were the World Trade Towers. Uh And the World Trade Organization uh, has been suppressing countries Uh, and countries' liberties around the world for as far back as it's been established. I mean, America has been very clear in our um, strategy with the rest of the world that... Mm -hmm. Um, we want to create a liberal world order where everybody is under the same economic system uh-huh. and we're at the top of it. Okay. And what that entails is countries that don't want to join this world economic system, we um, start with economic pressure where we sanction them, yeah. we try to coerce them economically, we yeah, try to yeah, cripple yeah. their economy, and yeah. if that doesn't work, we try to install a government that's friendly to us. Right. Um, and if we can't do that, um, through the means of whatever kind of democracy or theocracy or mm-hmm. whatever they have, we go to war with them. Yeah. And um, all of this to say that the World Trade Organization is, has been a huge proponent of privatization of natural resources. And so in a lot of these countries that have really rich natural resources, oil, gas, oil specifically, yeah. right? And oil was the big one around the turn of the century yeah. because everything was running on oil at right, the time. Right, right. And the technical revolution was you know, blowing up, I would yeah. say, more than it has in uh, any other point in history. Yeah. And so I was trying to explain to her that, like, listen, these people came from a place that had been uh, suppressed by the United States for, for years, yeah. that had a perfectly good system of government that they all loved, that, yeah. you know, in not all cases, but in some cases, right? Like, they've watched, you know, the history they've learned about America is that we've done this to dozens and dozens and dozens if not hundreds of countries all around south america first the middle east in in asia that we've Uh been doing this all over the world right and they saw us doing it to them saying unless you let private companies take your oil and run your oil business uh we're gonna cause an all-out war in your your home world or your home country which we did yeah um and that was why they attacked the world trade center right you know like that was the truth of it yeah, either they could uh, right, either they could, either they could just let the U.S. come in and kill their civilians, or 
they could get a good shot in beforehand. Right, and, like, right. my point with explaining all this was that, um, was to illustrate that having both sides of it actually informs what the truth is, right? Because yeah. it is also true. Mom's belief about what happened during World or, or during the World Trade Center yeah. um, during 9/11 was true. It was true that this was a brutal act of terrorism, that these people murdered thousands of people, uh-huh. that they committed heinous acts of violence, yeah. that they flew planes into the side of the, these towers with the sole purpose of murdering as many people as they could. That is true, and it's not justifiable. But it is also true that they had motives that were real, yep. right? That they had real, true motives mm-hmm. that paint us not very flatteringly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, in talking about the truth, having both of those perspectives is, is necessary in order to understand what was true about what happened. Greater on picture, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's his third argument, is that it oftentimes two sides can both have a truth or at least parts of the truth, that regardless of what their opinion is or whether or not it's right or not, you need to have both of those aspects or else the entire truth of something will be completely lost and you'll never get to the bottom of it, right? You'll never actually know what's true or what's not because if you stifle one side for your own, you're suppressing that ability to have the whole picture of truth. Yeah. So that's kind of his final argument about why it's necessary to have free speech entirely. And the the burden on, on the burden of that is on the government because they're responsible for they have the power right and the people with the power are right. Mill would argue that the government is the only force by which um, there's infrastructure to assert any kind of authority over, or that there's a risk of power and authority being asserted over people. Right. Uh-huh. Like, if you came up to me and was like. Hey man, I don't like what you're saying. I'm gonna kick your ass, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. that's something yeah, yeah. different than the government coming to your door and saying, "We don't like what you're saying. We're putting you in jail forever." Yeah, you know, <laughs> like those are two big different totally. things. You know, yeah. they're both pretty bad. Like, I wouldn't want you to kick my ass. Please don't, Arthur. <laughs> but... <laughs> you know, I could. <laughs> <laughs> you probably could, man. I probably couldn't hold my own in no. too many cases. Nope. But uh, every room in this, every, every item in this room is a, a, is weapon. a weapon. The yeah. liquid. <laughs> Oil paint slowly poison you. The oil paints, the yeah. Oil paint You'll coffee, make it look like a natural yeah. death, mm-hmm. like a Van Gogh type thing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> hmm. But I think um, there was one final point, and we're we're kind of nearing an hour right now, so okay. I'll, we'll wrap it up with this final point. Is sure. um, uh, kind of where we started, where he said uh, Mill kind of stated that the only way in which um, a person or persons be it government or individual, yeah. have the right to assert authority over someone against their will is in the case of um, self-defense or preser- yeah, saving yeah. people from violence. Yeah. And I think that actually is a point that is lost nowadays because now in America we seem to be going through this kind of moral panic where free speech is kind of under attack right now. And I don't like describing it that way, but uh-huh. it kind of is. And it's not under attack from the people you think it's under attack from. What, uh, can I, can I have an example? Sure. Um, free speech on campus. Okay. Um, there are dozens now of examples of, um, heads of colleges, of professors, of clubs yeah. on campus, yeah. of people losing their jobs yeah. for stating something that hurt someone's feelings. Okay. That people disagreed with. Okay. Um, in a classroom setting. Yeah. And it seems to be um, that this can extend even further to where the far left um, 
liberals have taken, they've hunkered down in this position of asserting um, that free speech only applies when they kind of think it applies. Okay. And that when somebody says something that's offensive, uh, they should be silenced somehow. Or when someone has an opinion that's wrong, it's not okay. And that it's somehow committing some kind of microaggression against somebody to say something that they disagree with. Uh And this isn't something that you see so much from... um, Well, actually, I'll rephrase that. This isn't something that's patently obvious Uh from conservative people. I would actually argue that this shit happens all the fucking time from conservatives. Uh That conservatives are the biggest snowflakes that ever roamed this goddamn earth. And that they point the finger at liberal people saying, you guys are too sensitive, we can't say anything anymore. Because, or without noticing that they do the same exact thing. So I actually think that this is a real problem. It's a bipartisan problem. I think this is an issue that it doesn't matter what party you're a part of. I just think that liberal people are the more the vocal examples. Okay. Like when you look in the news, when you when you hear about this shit happening on college campuses, yeah. it's usually never conservative people that are making these claims or that are upright up in arms about something that offended them. It's okay. usually liberal minded people. Okay. But um Mill talks about he gives this really good thought experiment, right? Where um that I think actually is applicable now. Um, maybe another example is uh, I'm not sure if you heard um, a- of Alex Jones. You ever heard of him? Um, did, if you haven't, be happy because you're not missing anything, guys. No, I don't. I haven't. No, is this you, recent so. news? It's recent enough. Alex okay. Jones is a far right conspiracy theorist yeah. who um, has made his career defrauding people on crazy conspiracy oh. ideas okay. that incite crazy amounts of violence. Yeah. Um, he believes Sandy Hook was a conspiracy theory that never happened. And the parents of people from Sandy Hook that had kids that were murdered yeah. have literally been receiving death threats for years. From... Have, have Some of them have even been like physically threatened by people that listen that are Alex Jones supporters. Oh, okay. Because he claims that this was all a government <clears throat> hoax uh, to parents... take people's guns away. Oh, okay. So... Um, John Stuart Mill gives this example, this thought experiment of imagine that there is a uh, famine going on uh-huh. um, or a drought or something like that, and people are starving. And um, somebody in town decides to blame the corn farmer uh-huh. for it. Okay. This person has every right under the freedom of speech to blame whoever they want, to talk about whoever they want. But the second that this person gets in front of a group of people and starts blaming the corn farmer and rallies this group of people to this corn farmer's house to protest outside their house that it's the corn farmer's fault. Uh He's inciting violence on that person. Okay. And your freedom of speech no longer applies. Okay. Because you have now contributed to a situation where violence is being incited against somebody. Yeah. And it it doesn't matter that you are entitled to your own opinion. It doesn't matter whether or not your opinion's right or whether or not your opinion's wrong. The only way in which the government or other people have the authority to assert themselves over you or over your freedom of speech or on your liberty yeah. is in self-defense. Sure. And that's not just self-defense of, of me. It's not just my self-defense. It could be self-defense of my society. It could be self-defense of this other person over here, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's actually super relevant to now because you see people all the time making these grandiose claims about 
it's my freedom of speech. You can't kick me off Facebook. You can't kick me off of Instagram. You yeah. can't kick me yeah. off YouTube. Yeah. This is an infringement of my First Amendment right. Yeah. yeah. When it actually isn't at all. These people have, I mean, aside from the argument that these are private platforms, right? They don't have yeah. to let you use them anyway. They can kick you off yeah. for any yeah. fucking yeah. reason yeah. they yeah. want. Yeah. But the main argument I, I like to, to point to is that you are free to say what you'd like unless it's inciting violence against another person. I'm uh-huh. not I'm not legally sure, allowed to sure. threaten you right now. I couldn't say, Arthur, I want to fucking kill you right now. Right, like, right. You could go to the police and say, hey, I feel threatened. This guy is yeah. he telling said, me he, he, said he was going to kill me, me yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I can't go into a movie theater and yell fire, right? Yeah. That's illegal. Yeah. So, like, there are obvious examples on which our freedom of speech is curtailed because... Yeah it runs the risk of inciting violence against right, others. Right, 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 right. And I think that nowadays, that's also part of what we're seeing in, like, college campuses and we're seeing by liberals is where they make this claim that, well, words are violence. Words can be violence. Uh-huh. And when you say something that is offensive, it's a violent act against me. Uh-huh. When it actually isn't. It's just saying something you disagree with that makes you feel uncomfortable. And, sure. But it sure. should make you more secure, actually, Mill would argue, yeah. in your own beliefs. Because you've now had the opportunity to come face-to-face with someone who shares a different belief. Right. You've now had the opportunity to gain facts that you didn't have before. That should help galvanize and strengthen your opinion in whatever it is you believe. And it's part of like why I get on like religious people for um, getting so touchy-feely when people make jokes about religion. Uh-huh. Or like when they talk okay. shit about religion. Where it's like, if your faith is that strong, why is it being shaken by just me talking shit about it like if anything it should make you feel more secure in your belief you know because yeah right, right. you know that you're you know that your beliefs or your whatever like they're they're of a different caliber maybe in your opinion than yeah. mine are but so why are you paying any mind to what i say sure yeah and how would you know that you're right if you didn't ever have to hear that you were wrong yeah you know yeah but that's generally what john stuart mill's entire argument is and the whole book this book on liberty is kind of the basis for our first amendment right so when the founders were thinking about this, and certainly when he was thinking about the founders, they were all considering these things. And a lot of First Amendment litigation and lawsuits that have gone on have used whoo, me, have used John Stuart Mill as um, the basis for their cases. Okay. Have used him in the court of law in this specific book to argue um, for or against someone's right to free speech. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah. Okay. Um, Sorry, I know that's a bit of a tangent, but no, no, no. It's a podcast, it, so it's all good. Um, uh, do you feel free to speak about any more more space news? Also, how does this? Um, how does John Stuart Mill's? Um, how do, how do his, his ideas apply to the free free speech of um, you know extraterrestrials, for example? That's a good question. So you want to create a thought experiment? Yeah, like. Um, I would say that John Stuart Mill looks at his theory of utilitarianism as well as um, his arguments on liberty mm-hmm. as being universal. Yeah, yeah. So Quite these literally. would apply you know, under any kind of government or cultural structure by yeah. which you could conceive of. Yeah, yeah. That these basic you know, except, principles... Um, can, I, can I interject? Uh, except um, barbarians. He said uh, barbarian people... Uh, can be um, uh, a despotism is an appropriate mode of government to impose on them. So say like uh, you know these aliens on you know Quaglar or whatever, right? <laughs> you know, say they're just planet Quaglar. Say we just see them as animals, right? 
um, then we could corral them or do whatever we needed to do to them until they um, were at the point where they could govern themselves. Um, but I remember reading that one of the criticisms of Mills on liberty uh, has to do with this idea um, because it plays into um, colonialism and imperialism. And, sure. you know, if you see, you know, a certain group of people as unable to govern themselves or as, you know, childish or whatnot, um, then it's appropriate to control them or to impose things on them uh, without taking into consideration their perspective because their perspective is, um, like, without warrant or something just based on the fact of what they are. Um, so I guess it would depend on whether we decided, you know, despite what he says about custom and how, you know, it changes and how, you know, people from one place think that people from another place are absolutely, they don't understand, right? D d regardless of that, um, kind of maybe how we interacted with an alien race would be dependent on, um, on our subjective judgment of how they could just how they operated you know yeah absolutely i agree all right well um we're nearing that hour hour and uh 20 minute mark yep um thanks for coming on dude that was a lot of fun yeah absolutely my pleasure um, thanks for i'd like me. to to dive into this again sometime sure because this book has so much in it and it's just jam-packed with interesting ideas for those of you guys who didn't hear, um, we just got done discussing um, John Stuart Mill's book on liberty. If you guys have any questions or comments, please feel free to leave them in the iTunes store. Um, if you have any other books you'd maybe like us to discuss, um, shoot them my way. Um, thanks again, man, for yeah, coming on. Thanks for having me, Troy. Um, I will have you back on again, man. Okay. Hope you want to come back on. Sounds good. I'm thinking of doing a podcast with a couple different people. Mm, um, I think that would be nice. I think it would yeah, be nice, too, because like it's really fun kind of. having just one person because you can really, like, kind of dive in deeper into, like, mm. a topic. or mm -hmm. um, But to have all those perspectives, like, like we yeah, were talking about, is absolutely. really uh, engaging. And I think it would yeah. allow for, like, a looser kind of discussion, right? We wouldn't necessarily yes. need to focus on just one thing. We could yeah. maybe talk about a different thing. Or people could bring one topic all on their own, and we could, like, jump and piggyback from, like, topic to topic. Yeah, right. But, um... Anyway, thanks again, man. Yeah. It was lots of fun. Absolutely. Thanks, um, Troy. Thanks again for listening, you guys.